Well, hello again, and welcome to the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint uh, live series. We're doing another live event today, and I'm really excited to have you joining us. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about myself and the Alliance. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, we started the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint to raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion uh, initially in schools across the nation, but really we're, we're very concerned about the use of restraint and seclusion anywhere that they're happening. Uh, our mission is to help uh, educate the public and connect people together who are interested in dedicated and changing minds, laws, policies, and practices so that we can reduce and eliminate uh, interventions like restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, all the things that we're doing to kids rather than working with them successfully. Uh, our vision is to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. And to that end, I'm really excited today to have another fantastic guest with us. Uh, Teresa Olofsson, Olofsson is joining us today for a very special presentation. Uh, she's gonna be talking about school resource officers, uh, first do no harm. Uh, we'll be taking your questions today during the presentation, so if you have questions, questions, feel free to ask them at any time. Uh, and I will be looking out for those questions and bring those up on the screen as we get them. I uh, also want to let you know that today's event is being recorded, as we always do. Uh, it's right now streaming live to YouTube and Facebook, but we also record it and make it available on Facebook, YouTube, and as an audio podcast. So uh, always exciting to have that available after the fact. So let me begin by introducing our special guest today. Uh, we have Teresa with us and really excited to have Teresa here. Uh, Teresa has been blessed with two amazing sons. And uh, as she says, they have raised her to be a fierce advocate. Uh, you know, a lot of us don't enter into advocacy um, by plan or by choice. Uh, but we we rise to the call when uh, when it's necessary. And, you know, Teresa is somebody that's definitely kind of risen to that need as an advocate. Uh, she's working now on her master's degree in nursing administration and management. And it's actually, we had a great conversation the other day, uh, looking into areas like neurobiology and trauma um, and really trying to to learn and contribute more uh, to help make, uh, you know, our, our schools and beyond uh, much better. Uh, you know, she says that she's newer to advocacy, but I, I think that we could probably get rid of that label at this point. Uh, she's very passionate about empowering families and, and creating positive impact on educational, healthcare, and political systems, you know, really through shared knowledge of bringing people together. And I know you, uh, Teresa, as, as I introduce you here, I know you also recently had the opportunity to present uh, on this topic at the uh, COPA conference. So I'm sure that was a great experience as well. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for a wonderful introduction. This is very humbling and it is such an honor to be here. So I appreciate the time and the platform. Thank you so much, Guy. You've Absolutely. been an inspiration, just, just a mentor that um, I was trying to remember how we actually connected. Um, it, it's been a while since we first initially connected with one another. So yeah, absolutely. And I remember connecting and, and talking uh, to you and, and, and Victoria Johnson as well, who's been on yeah. this program yep. about uh, what was going on in North Dakota. And, uh, you know, it, it really it really takes that kind of connection. I mean, you know, ultimately, you know, we hope to see people across 50 states that are that are taking action and doing things to help to, you know, prohibit these practices. I already had some comments here. Somebody said, why are restraints still allowed in some states? And, and sadly, they're allowed in, in most states. In fact, you know, corporal punishment is still allowed in many states. 19 states allow corporal punishment. So we've got a lot of work to do to get some of these practices changed. Uh, really excited to have you here talking today. You wrote an article for us a while back about, uh, you know, kind of police and schools and, 
you know, I think have, have done some really amazing research in that area. So excited to have you talking about kind of what you've learned and uh, sharing with us. So I am going to bring up your presentation on the screen. And as soon as I do, okay, so we've got your presentation on the screen. I know that you are seeing your presentation, no longer seeing yeah. me, uh, yeah. but you can now take it away. And as we get questions, uh, I will try to bring those to your attention. Uh, okay. So I would encourage people that are watching, uh, feel free to you know, ask questions or make comments and uh, we'll try to look for opportunities to get to those. Yes, absolutely. So um, the presentation obviously is school resource officers first do no harm. And as Guy had introduced, I we actually have or presented at the COPA parent presentation um, way back in March. So that is our first slide. So let me introduce myself. Um, in addition to what Guy gave, um, very humbly introduction. My name is Teresa Olafson. I am a parent first and foremost. It's been an amazing role that um, has come with a, a little bit of bumps and bruises along the way, but has been such a great experience for me as a parent. I'm also a nurse, which, which has um, kind of given me the foundation to be an advocate. Um, I call myself an advocate and I kind of wince when I say that because um, I don't think of myself within the same leagues as some advocates that are out there. I think I'm still learning. It's a big learning curve as well. I I come from Fargo, North Dakota. I am born and raised in North Dakota. I moved to Fargo, uh, I won't say how many years ago, but it's been a lot. Um, Fargo actually is the most populated city of our state, but our school district itself is actually the, only the second largest of the state, but we do serve over 11,000 students. It's interesting because um, North Dakota is very, very um, Caucasian based. We're very white up here, about 86% of us. We do have a larger Native American population, but we have very few um, people of color that live in North Dakota. And that's just a really good reference as we move on about why am I from Fargo, North Dakota talking to you guys about SROs? Um, it's really interesting to know that SROs, the school resource officers, have actually been in our schools since about 1950. They were first placed into the Flint, Michigan Schools District. And their role was actually as a resource to keep our students and our schools safe. So um, ever since their introduction into, into that role, we've noticed that there has been a mission creep. Uh, from the original intent of keeping schools and students safe. And it just kind of has um, exaggerated from there to kind of be more reflective mm -hmm. of what we're actually seeing now out into society has actually become reflective of what the SROs are seeing, maybe seeing in um, the cultural safety of our schools. The National Association of School Resource Officers, or NASRO, define SROs as those that are career law enforcement officers that have the sworn authority that are placed into school settings. So this may explain though why those deviant societal behaviors quickly become missions for SROs that they identify and address in our schools because that's what police are trained to do. 
So what once was a consistent role of ensuring like those safe school environments, now be actually be a main contributor to the growing disparity of both the school discipline and the justice practices against specific population of students that we know that we recognize that are ethnic or race, gender or disability statuses. And that's what ACLU has pointed out in several reports. Um, for me, as I looked into the SRO roles within our schools, it's really hard not to see that there's the influence of money. So the U.S. Department of Justice has a community-oriented police services. It's actually called COPS. And this is a federally funded program that sets the foundation for SROs in our public schools. In 2018, the COPS budget was noted at $218 million. That gained an extra $45 million after the Sandy Hook shooting. After the Parkland shooting, another billion dollars was given to states to infuse into their security budget. But what was interesting was a line majority was noted to go to SRO programs. School, public school budgets, their constraints typically do not extend into what is considered the health and safety budgets or basically what the SROs are funded by. So when we see those mental health tragedies that occur, such as the Parkland shooting that happened in Florida, our nation responds unilaterally with a bipartisan support, such as like the $70 billion military budget. Yet then on the same side, we go ahead and cut our educational budget, which includes funds for things like the School Safety National Activities Program. And that was cut for about $25 million over two years. However, this program was very instrumental in implementing behavioral health best practices within our public schools. And that goes to our students that are in need. So it really doesn't make sense while we're funneling money into militarizing our SROs in schools, yet removing funding sources for kids with mental health needs in our schools. Another part of the funding issue is our Title IX Part A funds that go into improving the educational safety and health needs for our students. That's what they're earmarked for, those dollars can also be applied across many different categories that the school districts consider to either be health or safety, which means these dollars can also be um, funneled into SRO programs. You're gonna hear me reference several times the ACLU 2019 COPS and No Counselors how the lack of school mental health staff is harming students' reports. If you've never been out to the ACLU website, they have many different reports that they have produced over the last several years, in particular about how um, our public schools are impacted by having mm -hmm. cops and officers there. 
these numbers are pretty staggering um, and they're pretty eye-opening and hopefully for a lot of us, they're pretty familiar to us too. So the data is pretty simple that we have 1.7 million students that go to school with a cop, but no counselor. 3 million students are in schools with cops, but no nurses. 6 million students are in schools with a cop, but no school psychologist. 10 million students go to school with cops, but absolutely no social workers. For me, those are some pretty staggering numbers. This is one of my favorite quotes by Linda Reinstein. She's a mesothelioma widow. And I love it because I think it is what represents the issue that we have with SROs um, pretty unilaterally, no matter where you are in our country is without responsibility and accountabil accountability and transparency, no one is safe. So I worked with um, Victoria Johnson and the Alliance had her on um, a handful of weeks ago with, with her inspirational story of developing her advocacy group in, in our state of North Dakota. And I worked with another mom, um, Nikki Kerr, and we developed this article um, report that we presented to our congressmen. And what we tried to learn about is who actually has oversight of SROs, whether it's local, whether it's state, whether it's federal, we were very concerned because we realized after George Floyd's incident that if there was going to be police reform, that we wanted to have input into ensuring that the SRO's roles was also included in any type of reform. And we just kind of wanted to understand who had oversight, who was actually going to have um, input into any type of role Revital, revi revitalizing roles are, are how these changes were going to occur. And what we found is um, at a federal level, there's no national standard on SROs. So then we went to go look at our state of North Dakota and any states at all. And then we just kind of started to notice a trend. And it became very concerning to us as parents that we couldn't find any clear um, accountability of who was responsible for SROs when they're in our schools. So President Obama's administration had a lot of focus on putting SROs into our schools, but as a mechanism of creating school safety to address the physical, physical safety of students from outside harms or threats, but in conjunction with that, um, there was also the enforcement and preservation of, of the disparity groups of students for their civil rights. So there was a balance. What had happened, though, is when um, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos uh, was appointed into her position, we had noticed, not we, society, um, oversight groups had noticed that there had seemed to be a lagging enforcement and sometimes a removal of these civil rights for students. So a trend emerged where 
concerns of entanglement of the policing power were noted, especially with the internal school disciplinary procedures in addressing how schools were responding to students either developmentally appropriate behaviors or disability presented behaviors with, within the um, education environment. So SROs who were entrusted to oversee the student bodies were responding um, within a policing manner, but not necessarily maybe a school staff manner when engaging students who were in distress and were responding in a behavioral response. So without even a national standardization, what happens is it defaults to the states to establish rules or even all the way down to the local educational agencies to develop and adhere to what we learned are memorandums of understandings. And these memorandums of understandings are supposed to outline or give some clarity to how the SROs are to um, expedite their role and be responsible. In particular, when addressing student behaviors. But what happens is, since there's no national standard that establishes SRO qualifications or training, and only a few states have actually established their own, that means about 24% of all states mandate any type of working knowledge of juvenile justice training. So we really have SROs that are in our schools that literally have no training or education on how to deal with juvenile behaviors or that have any idea of juvenile justice or related issues. My state in North Dakota, what we discovered when we researched this is we have no state laws for oversight on school enforcement units, on how officers are trained to interact with students. Um, I think what we were really disappointed to learn is that our schools or our districts are held to the simple expectation, just an expectation of a choice to follow the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act. And within that, there is a um, description of what a law enforcement unit can be like in a school environment. Um, and that's just, that's just a simple expectation that a school may or may not adhere to the Family Education Right and Privacy Act. Or if we're lucky enough, there may or may not be a memorandum of understanding uh, which may or may not exist, which may or may not be our right to access. So that, that was quite a rude awakening to know that there is little to no oversight or guidance for SROs in our state, much less at a federal level. Hey, Teresa, can, can I pop in with a quick question for you? Yes. Uh, thinking about what you said about the, the MOU or, or what might yeah. be providing oversight, uh, how might someone that is um, interested in, in what things look like in their district, might they go about requesting a copy of the MOU? So you can request a copy of the MOU. Well, you could just request it as a citizen making outreach. Hey, I would like to... Um, 
go to the superintendent and you know request and see if there one exists or you can do a freedom of information act request which compels them to give you a copy of the mou now how do you get a copy of the mou for your uh district um actually victoria johnson um who you had on previously mm -hmm. was able to get that and it was just a uh, a, a simple request. She gotcha. did not need to ask for it through a Freedom of Information Act. So, so like many things, maybe starting off with the the path yeah. of least resistance, and, and then if you need to, um, you know, escalate it to a, a, a FOIA right. type request. Okay, great. Yeah, I just right. I just wanted to ask that question because I'm sure people that are watching uh, that might want to know, you know, what what are the guidance that's being offered for their districts? Right. And you, that's a really good question because shouldn't we all want to know who's who's responsible, how they're responsible and, you know, what parts that are playing into, you know, our kids' daily lives? And and I think if I was the SRO and I'm not, you know, I, I'm not an officer, but I think I would like to know as well what my role and responsibility to these kids that are entrusted to me that I am, you know, charged with protecting too. Like what are my roles and responsibilities are? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's a bi-directional uh, communication too. So I, I would hope that they would be asking as well um, and perhaps not relying so much on what their training is, but what they're actually held accountable to that is written down. Absolutely. Yeah, great point. Okay, I, I'll step aside again. I just wanted to ask No, that. you're good. A good question. Okay. Good. So, um, so unlike the other two moms that I worked with to develop this presentation, um, my 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 son did not have an encounter with an SRO. We had heard um, different families within the, the state of North Dakota, and um, each parent, Nikki and Victoria, their own child had their own encounters. But for me, um, being a nurse, uh, I'm very proactive. I'm very big picture thinking. Um, so my intent was different. Um, what I realized is my child had been in the North Dakota public education system since the age of three. We entered early interventions at the age of two and a half. I was very well aware that prior to 2019, two things happened to a child in the state of North Dakota. Once they reach the age of seven, first thing is they're compelled to go to school. So once you're seven, you have to go to school in the state of North Dakota. Once you reached the age of seven prior to 2019, you also reached the age of criminal responsibility. Those two things were very concerning to me as a mom with a child who um, had a stress response and the stress response obviously was very concerning for um, meltdowns. In the public schools, we label meltdowns as aggression or assault or even worse things. We always put on those negative connotations. One thing, um, in the state of North Dakota in 2019 that happened was our then governor, Doug Burgum, signed House Bill 1039 that changed that criminal culpability age to 10. 
but we kept the Uniform Juvenile Court Act in which defines an unruly or a delinquent child who could still be charged with a criminal act by the juvenile justice system. So for me as a parent, there was little comfort in delaying the reality by just a couple of years in the state of North Dakota. Um, and that reality hits home when you have a child that is Native American, that is Black, or that is, in, that is disabled. So my story for my son is in North Dakota, aversion interventions were already being used for his disability-related behavior by the age of four which, of course, escalated his response to assertive adults during times of his stress. I firmly believe our story is very much North Dakota's initiation to the school-to-prison pipeline. So I, I am very determined to pre prevent not just my child, but all of the children um, from this almost certain fate of where we start funneling kids into the prison, the school to prison pipeline um, at the age of four. I just, I could not believe this. So the culture in North Dakota exists very heavily, very heavily on command and compliance. Um, our society, our, our communities, our families, um, it is especially prevalent in our in our um, education buildings, um, in our ideologies. It's very pervasive. It influences how we how we see students, especially those that are stressed out in a non-adaptive education environment. We we pretty much if if a child cannot be compliant to a command um, containment results. And that's the best way that I have learned to describe it. Um, we contain that child, whether it's through um, restraints, whether it's through containment into a room by themselves, so isolation, seclusion, whether we call it a timeout, we just, we make sure that child is contained and removed. So ACLU's 2019 had a report out that said North Dakota had a 67% increase of school arrest or referrals, which is above the national average. In the North Dakota penal system, what I discovered is the average male in our jail system in North Dakota reads at a second grade level. A female, um, reads a little bit better at a fourth grade level. So when we collectively wrote this report to present to our congressmen, and it was last summer, my motivation for change comes from having an illiterate child in third grade in North Dakota, knowing that his future realizing his future in North Dakota is not gonna be spent playing on monkey bars, but his reality is he will be behind prison bars if I do not help make change come to North Dakota. 
so these are just some caveats of North Dakota from our um, juvenile court 2019 annual report. It's really unfortunate that for some reason, and I'm sure this is reflective of any state, that we have what is pretty much considered age-based offenses. That means if you're under the age of 18, you are charged with these things just because you're under the age of 18. An unruly act is you're truant, you're not going to school, or you're gonna run away, and run away could be from home or from school. Um, ungovernable behavior, that's one that I personally take offense to uh, because if ungovernable behavior is resulting in this school, I call that non-modified non um, school environment that causes an ungovernable behavior. We're not doing something right at school that causes a child to be stressed out and we're not adapting to their needs. But here in North Dakota, we're calling that ungovernable behavior. Yeah, that, that, that's such a great point because, you know, yeah. um, when we see a child being restrained, secluded, suspended, expelled, yeah. so often the root of it is a child that's not having their needs appropriately met. Um, yet the perception is, is far different from that. It's, you know, at I, I probably will die on that hill <laughs> as, as many parents and advocates um, and professionals will, because when you live it every day, you, you can totally express through science and um, statistics and in every way, whether it's personal or through a detached explanation, but people only see what they want to see and what they want to label. And, um, you know, it just comes down to what people are willing to be accountable and responsible for. And if we can remove accountability and responsibi responsibility for it, I think that's why we tend to say ungovernable behavior. Um, I, I, I just makes me sad to see how much um, responsibility is transferred on to children who are developing life skills or are challenged because of their disabilities or lagging skills that they haven't had the support to develop. Yeah, um, yeah it makes me sad. And, and often may not even have the skills necessary to meet the demands that are being placed on them. Exactly. Non-adapted non environments, um, universal design. I'm all for unit universal design if we understand exactly what that means for for um, people of all abilities. So in, in North Dakota, um, I, ha I have argued this with a few from the legal system is um, why we have on our century code that a deprived child is one without a proper parent care but yet we don't see this bi-directional as coming from the school system either because proper parent care or, or it should be reflected um, any adult who has um, responsibility over the child too. So if there is not proper care that's being performed in the school or at a daycare center or, or whatever the caveat might be, we should be able to expand that and not just assume that it's it's the proper that or parent that is not giving the proper care either. Um, so 
case in point, I, I think a lot of times when we have a child that is ruled ungovernable behavior at school, that we should be looking to see what is depriving the child at school. Um, but I wasn't successful with that argument. Uh, maybe somebody else out there would be more successful, but it just seems like we don't have a lot of accountability for what the adults are doing at school or maybe not doing at school that would allow for better results of that child to, to be able to have more emotional control. So what, what was interesting for me is, and Victoria is actually the one who um, pointed me in the direction of finding the OJJDP uh, report. They had come in to the state of North Dakota and said, you guys seem to have a higher than average arrest rate for your youth. When we look at the numbers, we have concern about your disproportionate minority contact because you guys are kind of a white state. And we noticed that in Burley, Cass, Grand Forks, and Ward counties, um, which hold the, the most of your minority youth, there's some very concerning ratios that we're discovering. You can, you can see the ratios for yourselves. Um, and these were data points that were taken in 2017. But my county, which is Cass County, if you're Black youth, you are pretty much assured that if you have an encounter with an officer, whether it's an SRO or an officer in the community, 71% of the arrests are made of the Black youth. Burley County, which holds our capital of Bismarck, if you are an American Indian, 80%, 80% of the youth are American Indians. So you can see that we definitely have a disproportionate minority contact. So what they did is they asked the stakeholders to come together and devise a plan to start reducing these contacts. And they came together and um, said that, well, with some learning literacy and some diversion programs that we think that we can effectively reduce these percentage rates by about 2% the following year. Um, which I don't think that's a lofty enough goal. And, and I think if in 2019, 2020, that you're just discovering learning literacy to educate yourself we're really behind the ball in North Dakota. That's just my opinion. Um, but our, you know, our referrals into the justice system here in North Dakota doesn't just primarily um, come from arrest. It's also coming from our social service system and the school. So we have several areas that we can see improvement um, with these rates that we just need to collectively work on through all systems for improvement. I think one of the things that we tend to forget about is that school encompasses a greater context than that of just like simple learning. It's an environment where actually most of the accomplished developmental tasks that a child attains, or sometimes they don't attain, um, 
occurs during the time that they're at school. And this impacts their future lifelong accomplishments pretty much in all of the arenas of their life. So these are the most important times in our kids' life. So the U.S. public education is actually really challenged. I think we all can agree to meet what is noted as some very rapid rising mental health needs. And I listed a lot of the needs. As Guy had introduced, you know, one of my things that I'm really professionally motivated to address are adverse childhood experiences, which actually sets up a lot of neuropsychology of the depression, suicidality, and anxiety that um, little kids grow into as adolescents or even into adulthood. Um, yeah, that's my passion. My passion is for change. Uh, we know that there's a lagging ratio of school-based mental health providers. We know this ACLU has shown us the numbers. Um, it's vital, I think, though, for all of us to recognize that students are 21 times more likely to engage school staff for their mental health needs than to go outside and seek that engagement from a community source. And I think that speaks very highly that we, not we, but our students still see that the school environment is very nurturing. So what are the challenges that are facing our students? Um, and this is just coming straight again from that ACLU 2019 Casano counselors. And these are pretty staggering statistics. I don't think anybody would disagree within just a 10 year, just one decade from 2006 to 2016, we've seen a 70% increase in suicide rates for kids 10 to 17 years old. That's pretty staggering. Um, every time we have a school shooting, we know that there are direct and indirect adverse childhood experiences occurring. We know that 35 million children have been exposed to an event that goes on to lead to childhood trauma. Mental health episode typically is experienced in adolescence, which means for those who are um, mental health providers, it's most effectively treated during adolescence as well. One in five youth affected by a mental health issue will then lead to a diagnosis during those youth years. One in 10 youths will require, will require additional mental health support in the school setting. And mental health concerns directly impact academic achievements and contribute up to 50% of the school dropout rates. For our North Dakota Systemic Process Improvement Plan, you know, we had picked in improving the um, graduation rates for those who are on an IEP with the category of emotional dis disturbance. And I believe I've been following that trend. I know that's hard for you all to believe at this point in time that I'd be following trends like that, um, but I have, and we really have not budged um, on that goal. It's a five-year plan, and I don't think that we have made much of an improvement on that goal in five years. So 
I, I think that's really a, a sad um, state that we can't even achieve one simple goal that we've set as a state. So for this report, I, I simply picked a few resources to reference and Ryan and his co-authors were one of them. He had uh, a very interesting statistic that he took from the National Center of Education Statistics, where 41% of public school teachers reported that student behaviors disrupted their ability to teach. It's pretty interesting. 43% of public school teachers also self-reported that they lacked the behavioral management training provided by their education. I find that very interesting. I find that highly correlating too. So this, this leads us to ask, as we know that there's not a lot of resources in our school buildings, but we do know we have a lot of SROs in our school buildings. So public schools are struggling to support the mental and behavioral health needs of students, which actually allows us to have an over-reliance on policing the student behaviors. And we know why. Struggling teachers have better access to coordinate or to seek interventions by an SRO than the ability to have a mental health provider in the school to address those behavioral concerns that the students are displaying. Being asked to manage student behaviors without an adequate role definition or to have any type of mandated training. Remember when we talked about SROs, how they get trained, if anybody's watching what they're doing. So without any of that as their foundation, SROs unilaterally go to what they're trained to do, which is to police. And you gain control over behaviors by policing or having hands-on um, tactics. So what is known through aversion interventions, whether it's by the school officials or whether it's by the SROs themselves, a student education is affected. And we know that it contributes up to about 50% of the school dropout rates is by having SROs involved. So I keep mentioning school-based mental health providers or mental health providers in the school. When I say that, who am I actually speaking about? I'm talking about the nurses, the psychologists, the counselors, the social workers, um, the ones who are, who are desperately needed in our schools. And it's, I have a few of the stats up there, but I'm going to read you a few more. So again, ACLU's 2019 Cops and No Counselors really magnifies um, the deficits of our school-based mental health providers in the education system. Uh, so if if we look at what professional recommendations for student-to-provider ratios are actually um, out there, we will realize how vastly underserved our students are during a time in their life when they need these resources the most. 21% of U.S. high schools do not have access to a counselor. 
the only ones, Montana, New Hampshire, and Vermont, are meeting the recommended ratios. Less than 3% of U.S. schools meet the national recommendation of social worker to student ratio, while 67,000 schools report having no social worker capacity at all. That's schools. That is not total student population. 19 million students are not enrolled in a school with a school psychologist. And that's pretty devastating considering of all of the disciplines for school-based mental health providers, a school psychologist has the most knowledge and experience to assess a student's safety status and needs on site. A ratio, and I'm, I think this means an average ratio of 1,526 students to one school psychologist is two to 300% above the expert's recommendation. I can't even imagine what that load would be like on a day-to-day -day basis. For me, being a nurse, knowing that 70% of US schools do not meet the recommendation of a student-to-nurse ratio of 750 students to one nurse, that's pretty overwhelming. So we can see that these deficits are really glaring contrast to the robust depth and breadth of what SROs are in our public schools. And if you actually go out to the ACLU website, if you visit that, you can find your individual state and see where your um, state itself stacks up against in those statistics. So if you remember, my title for this presentation is SROs First Do No Harm. So the implication is there are harmful effects having um, SROs in our schools. And I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of harm was created um, as a result of the Columbine shooting because we created a zero tolerance policy. And I think we can all be honest and say we understand why the zero tolerance policy existed. Um, a lot of it was probably fear-based, but we were well-researched and were well-educated since that point in time in our history. And um, what has happened with the research that we now know is when we put SROs in our school buildings, there are harmful effects. In fact, in Delaware, if a student is going to school with a, a law enforcement presence there, they are eight times more likely to be arrested than if they were in a school with no law enforcement. Um, the federal CRDC data that was analyzed by ACLU notes that students in schools with police were three and a half times more likely to be arrested than schools without police. And I'm pretty sure I'm talking to um, an audience that's very savvy about the federal CRDC data, which is uh, voluntary mandatory reporting. So we know that these numbers might not be their full representation. So SROs at schools often lead students to perceive that these environments are actually hostile. And oftentimes students don't wanna be there or they, they don't wanna fully engage in, this, in the school environment. 
So probably one of the, the saddest statistic to report is in society, our youth have a historic 30 low arrest rate, criminal behavior rate, um, chemical usage rate. In society, youths are, are not um, criminally acting out, being arrested, being entered into the criminal justice system. However, there's a different story that is occurring within our schools. In our schools, we notice that, especially if you are a black, brown, or disabled or male student, these rates are not similar. We know that these rates are going up. Another article that I had used was from Fisher and Hennessy that reports that school with expulsionary practices um, tend to have poor school performances. That means that their standardized test scores are actually lower. We know that the black, brown, and disabled students are targeted at disproportionary rates. And we definitely know that this sets up that school to prison pipeline. And the school to prison pipeline um, are basically where the schools are referring students simple offenses um, onward for legal consequences. And the sad part is that once upon a time, administrators or school staff used to address these issues through their own internal policies or procedures. Um, we never used to send them onwards for criminal uh, consequences. So it becomes very concerning because SROs themselves, they, um, they owe responsibility to both the school administration and the police department. So for them, I'm gonna give a little grace because it's, it's gotta be really hard to execute their role because it's not really clear or concise without, without those memorandums of understanding. So if there's not a memorandum of understanding, SROs will always default to do what they're trained to do, which they will address those developmental behaviors or those disability behaviors or a stress response through a punitive consequence. We don't have to look any further than recently out into social media to see these episodes occurring. However, in 2015, the Department of Justice expressed caution that the SRO's interventions are pushing students into this school to prison pipeline. And there are real concerns that this statistical data is, it's just not complete and it's just not absolute because it is voluntary, which leads to some bias and underreporting. So what has actually been raised as concerns are that students are being charged with things like disorderly conduct when actually they're just talking back to maybe um, the SRO or maybe uh, an adult teacher. Um, serious offenses that students are often arrested for or they get referred into the criminal justice system for 
or um, physical attacks that occur without a weapon. So, um, you know, a typical school, school ground fight, 75% of referrals are for just having a, a school ground fight. So oftentimes these criminal charges are deemed excessive and very discriminatory. Again, from ACLU's 2019 Cops and No Counselors report, students with disabilities are arrested three times more than their non-disabled peers. Black students are arrested three times more than white students. Native Americans, Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiian students are arrested more than twice that of white students, and Latinx students are arrested 1.3 times more than white students. The reality for American youth is currently with having some of the lowest crime rates in our communities, um, generational low use of drugs and chemicals. Uh, we're just not seeing the same thing happening in our school buildings. And for most of us who are living it, we know that every time whether it's us as a student or us as a parent with a student, every time that, um, that, that student, that child is met with aversion, they lose. They lose that valuable academic time. They lose developmental progress. And what we are witnessing is that SROs really have no statistical value in preventing school shooting they actually are noted to have some harmful impact. Not some, they have harmful impact on minorities, on males, on students with disabilities. Um, and they, they are part of the school to prison pipeline problem that we have in America. So let's talk about the good news. And there is good news. We know that if if we have school-based mental health providers that we can start healing, we can offer some hope to our students. We know that incorporating school-based mental health providers into our educational environments, we create positive outcomes, um, whether it's just to the school, whether it gener generalizes out into our communities. Um, we definitely know what makes an impact to the students themselves. You know, ACLU's 2019 Cops and Counselors identify within that report that incorporating uh, the school-based mental health providers, we improve the school climate. We increase positive health outcomes. We improve school safety. Bet you didn't think that was coming. We actually improve academic achievement scores and we create students that are career prepared we actually get students that come to school. We get those attendance rates increasing. We lower, we lower suspension rates, we lower expulsion rates and other disciplinary interventions. Importantly, we improve graduation rates. So as we're getting close to being done, um, I think everybody's been here where we want to inspire reform. We want to create change. 
So how do we do that? And why do we want to do that? Well, for us, um, Victoria and Nikki and I, what we felt very passionate about, um, very passionate as, as this came at the end of, um, I think it was the week that George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, which is just a very short car ride from Fargo, North Dakota, is we realized that within the education environment, this is actually the first time for a lot of youth, it's the first time they experienced their first social injustice. And we, we really wanted to create more protection for students, um, especially our students here in North Dakota. And we also realized that we need to create better data. Um, we needed more oversight, better data, more oversight. We want more federal standardization happening. Um, we really wanted to see what we could do for a complaint system, especially to ensure that there's more checks and balances that benefit the student and family. And some type of federal definition to the role when it comes to prohibiting criminalization of certain student behaviors. And of course, I've been saying the phrases developmentally appropriate or disability related behaviors. I myself, as well as the other two moms, we, we do a lot of local work. Um, I, I, I said this to Guy um, yesterday when we touched base. Uh, Unfortunately, sometimes when you're engaging with um, local elected people, they really don't want to talk to you if you know a little bit about a lot of it. Uh, people just kind of avoid talking to you. One of the things that uh, I'm really passionate about is watching how the Juvenile Justice Reform Act of 2018 is going to shape um, future states, my state, your state. Watch, watch your state to see how this Juvenile Justice Reform Act um, shapes your state's juvenile justice system. It's, it's supposed to bring all stakeholders together to see how we can um, realign our youth and, and not necessarily send them into uh, the justice system for not meeting their needs, whether it's mental health needs, whether it's social services, and whether it's through the Cool. So I have attempted to uh, talk to some people about the, the lack of robust school involvement in our juvenile justice bill here in North Dakota. And unfortunately, I did not um, receive too much of a welcome response to some of my questions. So I'm still, I'm still working on them. I won't let them dodge me for too much longer. So the last thing I'm gonna to present to you guys is when my big thing is I can present to you a whole bunch of what is going wrong. Um, I'm also obligated to tell you what I want to have as a solution or what I call for this issue, our reform wish list. We can always sit and tell what's going on, but we also should be arriving with some solutions too. So for us, what we did is we looked to see what ACLU had suggested in their report. And then we said, oh, this is great. 
but we actually want more. So what we did is we kind of um, took their foundation and added to it. And we really, really want parents, advocates, and stakeholders to get really passionate and support the Elementary and Secondary School Counselor Act, which funnels money back into our schools so we can get those school-based mental health providers into our schools to offset that ratio of SROs. Um, we think that's very important. And we also want to remove some federal funding dollars uh, that gives the robust um, funding to having SROs into our schools. One thing we noticed too is we really believe that there should be a national student to SRO ratio, especially for those that have a higher set of um, school districts that have more minority students in there that have higher SROs in those school buildings. And we felt that was something that needed to be addressed as well. A lot of implicit bias and inferences we felt went with the SRO ratios. One thing um, we also would like to see is a little bit more robust and enforcement to student civil right protection, especially for the black, brown, and disabled students um, in our school districts. We're not stopping there. Um, this is mine. I, I'm not going to lie. I really, I really do believe that we should have a mandated, not a voluntary mandated, but an actual mandated collection system data collection system that directly ties federal funding to incentivizing compliancy by states. Um, you can be motivated internally or externally. And I, I just think at this point in time, money seems to be the greater motivation for a lot of states. So let's use it positively to ensure that we're doing right to, to and for our children. I do believe it's not an issue in North Dakota to enhance and expedite due process rights for students. Um, we don't seem to use due process readily in North Dakota, but it does seem like other states, other parents and guardians use it a little bit um, more frequently. I think New York actually has a backlog. I might be wrong on the state, but I think New York has a backlog on due process cases. We also really want to mandate and enhance Office of Civil Rights, OCR, role and responsibility to include allegations with SROs. Not sure if that's part of their um, scope, but we really think it should be. One thing we, we felt very passionate about is to establish a national standard for SRO qualification and training. And then we just went to town. You can see, we asked for a whole bunch of different things to be included with that. Trauma-informed model of care was the first and foremost things because we already know that most children are entering school already with an ACE, adverse childhood experience. So we already know most kids already have trauma in their backgrounds. We also believe that everybody has forgotten that kids are supposed to act out. This is part of their development. We are supposed to give them grace and guidance. So they should have some child and adolescent development. Um, classes. I would hope so. Disability training. Uh, 
I, I think I get a little frustrated uh, when we keep talking about a hidden disability. I don't believe uh, we should be using that terminology anymore. Autism, anxiety, ADHD, depression, um, they're really, we shouldn't be calling them hidden anymore. We just choose not to talk about them or talk about them freely without um, that negative connotation. We also believe that SROs should know what IDEA is, what an IEP is, what BIPs are. They also, also should know how to resolve a conflict without putting hands on a child or cuffs or any of those other aversion interventions. We also think some diversity training as well as knowing what juvenile justice actually is. Our big thing also was to develop a federal description of what the role and responsibility of an SRO was, including the chain of command and accountability. Are you an employer? Are you an administrator? Or are you a police officer? Remove the federal funds for weaponizing SROs in a public school. I know that one was from the ACLU. Uh, Prohibit the use of force based upon age, physical, and disability characteristics of a student. Prohibit the use of prone restraints. Prohibit the use of isolation and seclusion. Those two are not the same. Prohibit mechanical restraints, such as those flex cuffs or handcuffs based upon the age and physical and disability characteristics of a student. Um, eliminate SROs in elementary schools. I was actually really surprised to know how many elementary schools across the nation employ SROs um, and not necessarily as that community um, representation, but to actually police students. Little kids, five, six, seven-year-olds just really should not have the capacity to be criminally charged. Uh, they're, they're still in those developmental years of learning what is right and wrong. We felt pretty strong about removing SROs at public school administrators. Um, if you're gonna keep them in the schools, then remove their qualified immunity for those acts that they choose to perform in, this, in the public school buildings. We would like to see a bilateral complaint system. So uh, the State Education Agency, as well as the Attorney General's Office. We want to have a little bit more accountability. And then to limit the SRO's involvement with behaviors, again, that are developmentally appropriate, or the behaviors that are related to a student's disability, which is part of that Stop School Violence Act. So we kind of dreamed big, but we were ready to dream big or go home. With our um, with our wish list, there, guy. All right, and, and and I think very important to do so. I'm going to go ahead and remove your uh, your screen yeah. here. You're all done with your slide presentation, uh, so we can bring you up. And we we've had a, a lot of comments here that have been kind of coming through, uh, and I also want to invite people to ask questions. But uh, you know, first of all, thank you for for doing that. Uh, I think. Um, you know, I know when you wrote the piece uh, for us um, some time ago about SROs in school, 
um, you know, it was, it was a really thoughtful piece and well-researched and really appreciate all your, your uh, time and energy into this. So let me go here okay. quickly to some of the feedback that we've gotten. And I'm going to bring them up and uh, I'll read them as we get them. Uh, Kaya said, can we provide training sessions for law um, by law for all law enforcement to learn about disability and how to handle meltdowns and such? Um, and of course, you know, um, you know, there are there are places that are that are doing better than others probably here. Yeah. Do you have a, a sense of places that are that are doing better work or that are doing better both kind of on the school side, but also in more general? Because we've all seen the tragic stories of individuals who have lost their life due to uh, really people not being um, educated about uh, disability and handling situations that were, um, you know, didn't have to end the way they did. Um, any thoughts on that? Oh, I have many thoughts. <laughs> I have I have many thoughts. Um, and you know me well. I, I'm a research junkie. I'm going out there. I, I I definitely have noticed that it depends on where you're at across the United States. It really is community specific. Mm -hmm. Um and, and that is just how inclusive your community is and how um they respond to to um, all abilities, and and I and I I've, I've just grown not to want to say disabilities because I think it's just what we as a society are willing to provide to enhance abilities. So um, when when I did the presentation for COPA, I I got this in the sense that. Um, I want to leave you with hope. <laughs> I want to leave you with hope. I did not get the sense that this was something that a lot of districts were willing to do to have their SROs trained. My sense was it took a lot of ad advocacy by parents, the want and the need by parents to be there before the willingness whether it was by the district or the police departments to proceed forward with training. So I think if you have a really wonderful community that really sees the value in it, you would probably get easy engagement for that, for that idea. I know locally in my area, whether it's on the east side of the state or the west side of the state, we have a lot of providers mental health providers who are expert in trauma that are more than willing to donate their time. They really want to be involved in creating change and in creating awareness of what trauma looks like for whether it's a, a person within, with um, lagging skills or whether it's just a, a child that has trauma. Because we really want to create a narrative that um, Trauma comes out as an action and not necessarily as a memory. So some people respond traumatic action and not that memory. So aggression or a meltdown or um, disengaging, which sometimes people will call that they're just being, you know, oppositional. Mm -hmm. That those are sometimes trauma responses. So we would love to be able to get our local um, 
SROs or officers trained, we just need to have that willing collaboration. It, it might come, we're hoping. Yeah. Uh, other communities might have better leadership already there willing to do it. You, you know, one of the things that, that I've, I've um, kind of learned in this work, um, whether you're talking about teachers or you're talking about law enforcement, um, is how a very little bit of knowledge related to trauma in the brain can go such a long way. Um, you know, if you begin to understand what happens to the brain when individuals are traumatized, if you begin to understand what the reaction of an individual that has had a traumatic uh, background might be, when you begin to understand that that when a um, you know child has a trauma history, that they may be more likely, or anyone has a trauma history, they may be more likely to be hypervigilant. And being hypervigilant, they may be more likely to uh, have stress-related behaviors. And those behaviors, uh, when met with compliance commands, uh, often lead to the escalation. So it's very often the people that that should be understanding the child that are escalating the child. And, and you know, of course, you know, when we're talking about um, you know things that happen in schools. Uh, it's that escalation that leads to restraint, seclusion, oh, suspension, know. expulsion, all of these things that are being done then to the child, which further traumatizes the child. Um, and, and there's so much that's avoidable with even a very basic idea. I mean, you know, for me, as I began to learn more about this and understand that, you know, when when someone is having a fight or flight response, uh, mm-hmm. that that's not a willful reaction. That is a, no, uh, no. a distress reaction. And and when they're having that response, they're not, you know, they're not communicating with their frontal cortex. Nope. They're, they're operating from their amygdala. And yeah. and understanding, you know, these kinds of reactions, which are, are perfectly, uh, you know, n- typical and normal, and and people should understand. And especially again, when you were talking about very young kids, I mean, uh, as you mentioned, in elementary schools, um, you know, um, and and we see a lot of cases where SROs. Uh, that line really blurs with what their role is. And suddenly an SRO is being called in to work with a child who has become escalated. Um, so, you know, it seems to me that, you know, even a very basic amount of knowledge related to neuroscience. I mean, and again, this is not saying that everybody needs to, to be a neurologist, but a very basic level of knowledge could go such a far way. I love that you point that out because understanding the, the simple pathways, the, the very simple pathways of, of what um, the flight fight response or freeze, right? Because we know that there's the freeze response. Um, thank you, Dr. Mona Delahook, who does a beautiful job in her book of describing this, which is, you know, Dr. Stephen Porges' polyvagal theory, that we are instinctually set to survive. And that's what our behaviors are based upon is survival. So, um, you know, how, how do we punish a child for who is just doing what their instincts are telling them to do, which is to survive? Unfortunately, what we do as adults harm them and we inadvertently train them to continue to respond, um, which creates that very cycle of aversion then their stress response gets hypered or heightened and and then hyper vigilant. And they're always watchful. Um, And, you know, we spoke about this yesterday. That's 
that's kind of the journey that I'm into within my profession is really understanding from a very young age how those of us um, enter this world already at a deficit. And then we have repeated stress that we have not realized uh, that the world just challenges us with and that we have some lagging skills. And then the systems that we put into play, the education system being primary for kids who have lagging skills has yet taken the vast amount of information that is out there and has utilized it to enhance what they can do to um, minimize the stress response that we put on these little bodies and these little minds that are still developing. Instead, it has actually worsened and keeps them in that instinctual survival mode. Right. And, and yeah, education, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, as I told you, I think when we talked yesterday, I'm, I'm looking forward to your next research piece. <laughs> I know where it's headed. And I think, uh, you know, yeah. you're, you're really providing a lot of help to, to people that are they're going through this. So I look forward to that. Let me get a couple more of the comments here. A couple of folks indicated that, you know, they had had children that have been arrested by SROs. And of course, how yeah. traumatic that has been for, for them, you know, and their families. Um, yeah. You know, so we, we had a few people that, that have been through this experience. And again, you know, um, we need to, we need to, we need to do better. I mean, it's absolutely absurd that, uh, you know, some of these things are happening that are so avoidable, um, you know, with the right type of, uh, you know, training and, and help and whatnot. Um, and, and, you know, you mentioned, of course, uh, you, you had you had the slide about kind of the monkey bars, the prison bars, and I, I hadn't seen that before. But, you know, this idea of the school to prison pipeline, of course, um, you know, and if you look at the data, I'm pulling up a, a comment here. But if you look at the data, you know, our prisons and, and of course, in the United States, we have a, a very, um, you know, we have a lot of people in prison. And, and a lot of the yeah. people that are in prisons are people that are. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, neurodivergent, there are people that are, um, you know, ADHD, autistic, um, dyslexia, our prisons are full of, 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 of kids that have, have gone along that school to prison pipeline. Uh, and, and Tara here brings up that many kids of color and neuro kids are treated like criminals from the second and third grade uh, in their school district. Uh, and again, overreacting to everything the kids did. And again, you know, sometimes we, we uh, it seems, <laughs> I don't want to use the word we here, but it seems like there's an expectation that a seven or eight year old is a, a miniature adult with a fully, uh, you know, a fully, um, you know, developed brain. And, and, and the truth is that the, the way that our brains develop, it's a kind of a front to back process. And, and they don't even have all of these capabilities. Yet we put these demands on kids that they're, they're not able to meet. And then, you know, the, the, the impulse seems to be towards consequence. Consequence. Um, you know, rather than even stopping to think about cause, you know, it's all about no. consequence. Yeah. Uh, let me just get through and just see a few more comments here that we've got. Uh, had a lot of a uh, lot of discussion here, um, and uh, I'm, I'm going to get down to the bottom where I've asked people add, add some new questions here. And of course, you know, um, you know, talking about the financial end of things, and uh, you know, money should be geared towards training. Um, you know, another another great point there. Yeah. Um, let's take a look here. Um, yeah, and, and certainly that report from the ACLU, every time we see that data, I mean, I, I get knots in my stomach reading about all the schools that we have across the nation that, you know, have, have police but don't have 
you know, don't have counselors, don't have psychology, you know, psychologists, don't have so many of the supports that our kids need. And it looks like our, our friend here, uh, Victoria, uh, was here. And uh, you were talking at the time, I think this comment came up about the, you know, what the MOU might say, what the requirements might be. And she brings up that uh, they only need to be kid friendly. Now, that, that's, that's quite a uh, specific <laughs> requirement there, right? And what, and you know, for me, I start asking questions like, what does that mean when you're right. saying it as an adult? Because right. what I think is kid friendly might not be what you think is kid friendly, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that that's a great, you know, what a teacher thinks is kid friendly might not be the same thing as, you know, what a police officer thinks is kid friendly either. So isn't that a great way to not put anything into, you know? Yeah, no, no, it absolutely is. Absolutely is. Uh, You you know, here's a comment here from uh, our friend Kat who says impressive research. And and I agree. I know you put a lot into the research that you've done here. Um, And uh, I love this um, from Rich who says schools need to change to fit the needs of the child, not the other way around. And unfortunately, that's what we often see is that, you know, we're trying to change the child. Um, you know, rather than figuring out what are their needs and accommodating them. Because so much of this comes from, as you said, kids that are not being appropriately accommodated. You you know, that probably is the part that just is the most frustrating. How many years are we past ADA? How many years are we past Section Mm -hmm. 504 or IDEA? We're still not getting it right. Mm -hmm. Let me me ask you a question here that that may be a a little bit challenging, but... um, you know, I've looked at a lot of this data as well and, um, you know, have a lot of concern about, you know, what, what we've been talking about, the, the number of schools that are, um, you know, that, that have law enforcement that don't have so many other things that the kids need. Um, I'm, I'm really concerned about kind of the compliance culture of everything getting to be about compliance and consequence. Um, you know, but I've had conversations with lots of different people and I've heard things like, well, the SROs in our area are different or, you know, and, 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 you know, oh, well, we don't have those, those, those issues in our district. And of course yeah. I hear the same yeah. thing on restraint seclusion. I've had people tell me, oh, well, we don't do that in our state. And I'm like, no, you do. <laughs> you might not be aware, but, but, you know, and, and there are children. I mean, again, and, and if you look along the lines of the impact of, of police and schools, uh, there are children that are more likely to be impacted. There are children that are coming from communities where the, um, you know, the law enforcement presence may be one that um, strikes fear and, and other reactions. So, you know, again, and, and I've heard from, you know, I remember, uh, you know, talking to people who, uh, young men that I know, um, who talked about, you know, that, that he feels that police need to be in schools. Um, and, and part of that probably comes from the fact that people have been traumatized by, you know, the, the school shootings and, and fear. Um, how, how do you address that? Um, you know, because I think people are in different places. And, and like you said, different communities can vary quite a bit. But even if even if you said in my community this is different, the, the fact is that in your community, do you still have those same deficits? Do you are you still missing the uh, pieces? So anyway, I'll stop and let you. No, I I think you you have a great question because you know my oldest, um, even though he he was ADHD, he was very much a traditional learning student, so he had a. Um, a really traditional uh, education in Fargo. 
uh, he um, was an athlete. He succeeded very well in the classroom. So his, he enjoyed his relationship with the SRO at the school. I mean, he benefited from his, his um, relationship. So it, it, it gives me kind of like the double, double-edged sword for those, for those who benefit, it's a good thing to have the SROs. I am the parent that gets to say, I have a child A, but I also have the child B because my child B is not going to get the same benefit. So if I have to weigh who got, who's getting the benefit and who's getting the harm, then which one is going to weigh more heavily on me? The one that got the benefit of a relationship or the one who's going to suffer harm and how much harm is going to result. So I kind of think that's kind of where my threshold is in answering that question. What what's the um, return on investment, right? <laughs> and I think when we see that there are far greater harmful effects than the positive effects of having the SROs in, and I think that's reflective of what we're actually seeing nationally. And I'm not saying that every officer is is a replication of of what is hitting the headlines. We just know that we have some unilateral issues right now and that we have been paralyzed as a society and our oversight agencies are kind of paralyzed in trying to figure out how do we address it that gives everybody benefit. And we don't have marginalized populations suffering disproportionately. And that's what we have, whether they're in the schools or whether they're in the streets. Why do we have it and why can't we get better um, collaborations for it to be improved? That's where I'm at. Because it shouldn't be this hard. We should not have kids dying in the school. Right. Right. Yeah. And I would say that, that you know, one thing to, to maybe add to that is just, you know, in my very overly simplistic view of the world here, um, so much of this is about relationship. You know, it, it's about, you know, someone yeah. at the school having a really positive relationship with a kid. Um, and, you know, and, and it's it's that person, whether it's the, the counselor or uh, the psychologist or the teacher or I- anyone that has a really positive relationship can make such a huge difference, um, you know, for, for a kid. And, you know, I'm sure that there are, you know, people out in, in lots yeah. of different roles. I mean, you know, yeah. we, we've, we've certainly met uh, school, you know, I think about school administrators that I've met and known that have been that person, you know, and of course there's, mm-hmm. there's people that fall way on the opposite side of that and they are the consequence person. Um, but, you know, I, I think that that's one of the things that is sacrificed when we don't have the right kinds of professionals in the schools, working with kids, connecting with kids, developing those relationships and supporting kids that are having difficulty. I love that you point that out because I think what we have done is we've fallen away from the relationships um, and then having SROs who are trained, I think we need to continue to think SROs are trained specifically to do their jobs on the street. So they are trained in certain methodologies mm-hmm. and certain ways to interact. They're not there to build a relationship, right? That's not what their job is for when they're on the street. So when we move them into our, our schools, they have to work to build a relationship. Now, I have met some SROs that are naturally gifted mm-hmm. to have relationship um, traits. 
So, uh, but yet they are still trained to take in information really quickly, process it, and then arrive at a determination pretty quick of what they need to do because that's how they're trained to do it. So I think what has happened is like everybody has seen the video of that little five-year-old boy that was put into the police car, brought back and brought into the school building. And we've seen the two officers have very negative interactions with this little crying five-year-old boy. I think what disheartens me is that is role modeling. So if we respect officers and we have the halo effect, that's what we call these people of different professions. We give them halo effects. We think what they're doing is something that we as adults then should role model too. Well, if the officer approached this child and had this interaction, then I think that's okay if I do it too. Mm-hmm. My my own wonderment is since we introduced SROs into this school and their training has taken on a different flavor over the years as necessary to address society's issues, we backfeed it into our schools. And then we have administrators and teachers now witnessing this different interaction because that's how they're trained is that I don't want to call it a contaminant, but we're all role modeling behaviors and relationships to each other. Mm-hmm. Is, is that part of the issue that we are now experiencing? Because if an officer can treat a kid like that, well, why shouldn't someone else think it's okay to treat a kid like that too? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really insightful point. Uh, and, and I like your mention of the halo because a number of the professions that intersect here are often kind of put in that category. Yeah, they are. Yep. Yeah. So, so uh, we are just about at time here, but I want to bring no. up a couple more. more oh, I no. think we have fun. You know? so, <laughs> uh, we, we have a couple more comments and questions I, I want to bring up here. One again from uh, Victoria, and she said, our, our state uh, of North Dakota does not like good trouble. But we are not going anywhere anytime soon, and uh, I, I love that. I love that comment, and you know, I want to encourage. You know, you and Victoria have both on, been on this journey and been making lots of good trouble, uh, and we need more people out there making good trouble. And you know, I want to encourage people, whether you're a parent or um, you know, whether you're an educator, whatever you might be, if, if you see things that need to change, uh, you know, that I mean. We're all we're all just I mean, you, you know, regular people that got thrown into into this because of yeah. our circumstances. I mean, yeah. I never planned, you know, a couple of years ago to start an organization to fight for civil rights for kids. Um, it happened because we needed to do something. And and I would encourage people to to follow the model that you and Victoria put out there as well uh, and, and make good trouble. And, and, you know, we're here to try to help with that as well. Uh, a couple other comments here. Let's take a look. Um, let's see. Um, so I, I haven't read this whole comment, but I'm going to bring it up and we'll, we'll kind of go through it. Uh, uh, Beth here says it would help with the school staff writing BIPs, behavior intervention plans, had a clue how to write oh, yeah. one that helped the child instead of punishing them. Uh, my son uh, has autism and was leaving uh, the uh, day class classroom to get alone. And he, when he was overwhelmed, which is something that happens, my, my son at a very early age was an eloper. Uh, he was 12. He agreed to stay right outside the classroom, but they felt he was unsafe. Um, and, and, you know, I'll tell you, my son actually hates the word unsafe because he was yeah. restrained and secluded for things that were unsafe, which even didn't meet our legal criteria. 
Uh, so of course it was seen as an act of defiance. Uh, two things happened. He was chased by the principal until the SRO could be notified. Then he was chased by the SRO who scared him enough to, it looks like the, the comment stopped there. Um, but, you know, I think you get the idea. And very often, um, you know, these behavior plans, first of all, um, and, and I don't want to go too far off on a, on a you know, we, we talked the other day about seeing squirrels, right? And, and I don't want to get too off on seeing my own squirrel here. But, um, you know, we, we, we talk about some of the things that end up in behavior plans. And behavior plans often make the assumption that all behavior is volitional, all behavior is a choice, uh, doesn't take into account the, the neuroscience, doesn't take into account the polyvagal theory, doesn't take in the fact that that not all behavior is volitional. If we're in a fight or flight mode or we're traumatized, uh, you know, we might have behaviors that aren't. But they often meet behaviors with just, it's about rewarding consequences. It's not really helping the child develop the lagging skills. So um, that's a great point about, you know, some of the problems with the BIPs and, you know, um, whatnot. And, any thoughts on that? So um, I, I usually write my BIPs for the school. Um, I, I'm very conscientious of the wording that I use. Um, I, I have learned a lot from the guests that you have had on, which I'm very grateful for, because I think one of the things that I use is I really push back on the idea that, um, kids are defiant. Mm -hmm. Um, I use self-advocacy now. They're being self-advocates. They're being their own, their own person. Um, so, and then I, I like to frame that out um, in my presented BIP, like this is what it looks like. This is why the, this is occurring. And, you know, I, okay, so I'm a nurse and I go way above and beyond because I'm documenting everything, um, which document everything, right? That's what we all learn about. But I also like to give... Um, and this is what I've learned from um, a lot of OCR interactions too, just don't give wiggle room out. So if, if there are situations that you want handled in the way that you believe benefits your child the best, then write it out down to the T. Take a lot of language out of those BIPs and IEPs that are very situational based, may, could, if then, um, because that allows the adult to have a lot of perception of when they're going to apply uh, a, a physical break. Like if your little one needs to go outside. Um, what I have done and I have encouraged some of the parents that I talk to, if they have issues about SROs, is the SROs are asked to come into IEPs. And they're asked to be educated. And then you outline in the IEP or the BIP what the SRO's expectations are. Because they're, if they are employed by the school, have their salary paid by the school in any capacity, then they should be considered an employee of the school and should be present at the table. That's what I advise. Now, do we get it? I don't know. 
probably about a 50-50, but you can request it and at least have it documented, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so we had another comment here in that vein, and, and Spectrum Life said, uh, I make support plans, not behavior plans. Uh, oh, I love that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that, that's absolutely great. And, you know, because, I mean, let's think about it. I mean, you know, we even see uh, districts and, and schools trying to put things like restraint and seclusion in a behavior intervention plan. Never. But of course, um, you know, yeah. the, these are interventions that are crisis management interventions, shouldn't be right. a planned intervention. Uh, that not. shows a, a plan of a failure. Um, so, yeah. Well, I listen, this, support is, plans. Yeah, yeah, th this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm really fortunate that we got the chance to connect some time ago. And uh, I, yeah. I love the, the research you did on this. And uh, I'm really looking forward to your, your, your next research as well. Uh, but I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. No, I, I appreciate you having me. I appreciate people listening and I hope it carries good conversations forward among their own circle of individuals. Um, absolutely enjoyed my time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And, and a couple of people asked if you, we might be able to share your slide deck. So uh, let me know if that oh, might be a possibility. Okay. Sounds good. Yep. Uh, I think I have a copy of it, so we can look at sharing it on the uh, on the page, on the Alliance page. Is there any way that people can get in touch with you if they have questions or are looking for any information? Um, is it okay if I give you my email or you can give out my email? Um, sure, 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 yeah, sure. we can make arrangements. Yeah. I, I tell you what, I can make that available. If anybody is looking for it, yeah. uh, they can contact me directly. And uh, my, my email address, I'll put in the... Uh, chat here is Guy Stevens at nseclusion.org. So if you would like to be connected, I'd be happy to kind of make that Absolutely. connection as well. Absolutely. Fantastic. I, you know, I'm one of those people who will connect with anybody and I spontaneously connect with people across the United States. So that, that's, that's, how, that's how we connected, right? I mean, it was, you, it you reached out and, and I think that's really important. I mean, you know, I, yep. I think we're both in yep. the same mind that I will sit I will talk to anyone who will listen and, and uh, yeah. they don't need to sit still. They don't need to look at me. If they're interested in what I have to say, uh, we're happy to talk. So uh, I appreciate Absolutely. it. Um, thanks so much. And I'll look forward to having you again uh, sometime after you get to work on your, uh, your next bit of research. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to make a couple announcements here, but I will let you go. And, and thank you. Thank you. Uh, so a couple quick announcements here. I thank everybody that joined us today. I hope you found this helpful. Uh, you know, really interesting discussion, something that uh, we absolutely need to have more discussion around. Uh, and again, those of you that uh, I think somebody said that they were ready to sign up for Good Trouble, I would encourage all of you to, to think about what you can do, uh, not only to change your, your local school or school system, uh, but what we can do beyond that. Uh, feel free to email me if you're looking for more information uh, or if you want to get a copy of the slides, I'll, I'll be happy to do that. I'll try to post them up on the site as well. I do want to share with you that we have a Another uh, great presentation coming up in two weeks. So those of you that are aware, every two weeks uh, we do um, we do these uh, events and uh, sometimes presentations, sometimes interviews. Uh, really excited. Uh, in two weeks, we're going to have Greg Santusi, if any of you have been following his work. Really amazing uh, occupational therapist who has a, uh, a Facebook page that he's been really sharing a lot of amazing content on. Uh, looking at kind of, um, you know, looking at behavior, looking at many things that, that are being done that aren't working, but has a great perspective on how to how to help kids and support kids. And uh, really excited to have Greg on. So thank you again, all of you that joined. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again next time.